From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. Today's episode features Annie Norman Schiff, a Jewish educator and writer. She is a PhD candidate in religious studies at Yale University. Annie has a broad experience teaching undergraduates and divinity students at Yale, teaching adult groups in the Jewish community, and teaching young people. She is the Youth and Family Programming Director at Congregation Bethel Kesser Israel in New Haven, Connecticut. Since we are beginning our journey into the prophetic books of the Old Testament, Annie and I spend the first half of the episode discussing the contours of prophecy in Israel and the ancient Near East. Then we discuss some of the structure and themes of Isaiah in particular. Annie, thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. Uh, I'm so glad that Monica connected us. This is really serendipitous. And in all the conversations that we've been having in the last 30 minutes before I hit record, uh, I can just tell this is going to be so much fun. So um, Annie, I'm glad you're here. You're going to talk to us about um, prophecy in general, kind of throughout uh, the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew tradition. Uh, And then we're going to dive into Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah itself, and kind of how it breaks down. So I just want to open the door to you to kind of tell us a little bit about prophecy uh, in the ancient Near East, prophecy in the Hebrew Bible as well, um, because I think we've already experienced some prophecy, even if we don't realize that we have. So I think sometimes the English notion of the word prophet focuses on someone who tells the future, someone who tells us what's going to happen. And that's not really the role of the prophet in ancient Israel or in the ancient Near East in general. The word for prophet in Hebrew is navi which is related to the word bow, which means to come or, or so it, a Navi is someone who is told to come, someone who is called, someone who God calls out for a special role, perhaps to speak for God. And this might be really focused on the present and on the needs of the present time and not necessarily on using God's ability to see the future. So you're telling me that like, I, I shouldn't think of a prophet as like a seer, someone who's going to, um, who's going to predict the future or has a crystal ball or anything like that. Even in the ancient pagan world, those were sort of two different roles. You could have somebody who was a seer who was trying to tell the future based on signs and nature. And ancient Israel said, don't do that. That's, that's against what God wants us to do. Yeah. Or you could have someone who is speaking to the deity and speaking for the deity. And ancient Israel had their own version of this that made sense for uh, a religion that believed in one God instead of many gods. And this meant that the prophet, the person who spoke for God, was actually an even more powerful and important figure. So you're telling me when you're in more of a polytheistic religion, you almost need a prophet or a seer to kind of help you divinate between all the different gods and what they might be trying to tell you. Whereas when you're in a monotheistic religion, well, now you have this person who can literally say, hey, I'm speaking for the one God. And that's a really important role to take. And sometimes allows uh, the prophets to act even with audacity with, uh, to really speak truth to power in a way that becomes a, a model for us in later times. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So I think we've seen prophets already in our, in our Protestant canon. Now that's different from the, the Hebrew canon in the sense that, uh, the Hebrew canon puts all the prophets together. Right. And by that, I mean, uh, Samuel and Kings are considered prophecy in the Hebrew Bible or are considered part of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Right. Yes. The Hebrew Bible or Tanakh in the Jewish canon and the Protestant Old Testament all have the same books, but they organize them in different ways for different emphasis. So there's a category in 
the Protestant Bible, of course, it has historical books. And that category doesn't really exist in the Jewish Bible. In the Jewish Bible, there's just the Torah, the five books of Moses, the prophets, which includes historical books from the time of both kings and prophets, and then later writings. So there's a category uh, in the Tanakh called the former prophets, meaning the earlier prophets. And this includes the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So books that in your study you've already read, looking at them as historical books, are categorized by Jews as a kind of books of the prophets because prophets appear in them. Yeah. So tell us about that a little bit, right? I mean, so, I mean, I know Elijah and Elisha, but there's, there was one before them even, right? Before we kind of get to Elijah and Elisha. I mean, we've got other prophets that occur in these former prophets, right? Yes. One thing that we know about prophets just in the ancient Near East in general is that prophets tend to start popping up when you have kings. Mm. When your society becomes complex enough to have a king, then all of a sudden you have a person who really needs God's guidance and having a person who is called by God to speak for God in that situation is very important. And we see this in the Hebrew Bible because the first prophet is Samuel, who pops up at the same time as the first Israelite kings. So when the Israelites start agitating and saying, we wanna be like the other peoples and have a king, it's Samuel the prophet who says, okay, this is kind of a bad idea. But eventually, begrudgingly, brings us into the era of kings and of, of prophets advising kings, first with Saul and then with David. And perhaps perhaps Samuel's like, well, we need a fire alarm here. This is a bad idea. So <laughs> the fire alarm is the prophets. The kings could go crazy. And here's the person who can ring the alarm whenever the kings are getting out of control. Yes. And that is often the role we see the prophets take in these books that that Jews might call the former prophets. Mm. We also see this with the prophet Nathan, who is a prophet under David. In the the famous story of David and Bathsheba, where where David acts so badly, he has a relationship with Bathsheba, he has her husband killed so that he can be with her. The prophet Nathan confronts David with a parable, a story about a lamb who is uh, the only creature owned by a very poor farmer and a rich farmer takes her. And there's this moment of dramatic irony where David says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, taken the the lamb, deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. So we see a lot of the the qualities of a prophet in this historical story. You have a prophet who is an advisor to the king, who speaks in poetry and stories and parables, whatever will get your attention to to convey what he needs to convey who speaks God's perspective, but about this particular moment, and who speaks truth to power in a way that in Yiddish we might describe as chutzpah. He's willing to call out the king and say, whatever method, whatever method of parable or story I can use to get you to realize, you are wrong. Mm, Nice. So, and, and prophets also do prophetic acts. um, And, and I I know they're all throughout the prophets, but I think Ezekiel does a, a bunch of them, right? Yes. He's willing. He's almost like a performance artist. He's willing to do a lot of things to get your attention so that God's message can get across, including doing incredibly bizarre things where if you ask them about it, he'll explain that it represents the message that God needs you to know. Yeah. So he's using his body almost to kind of, is his full being to convey this. Um, He sleeps on one side for a certain number of months and on the other side for a certain number of months that it represents things. So we've gone through our historical books and, uh, and we saw as we got to the end of, well, so in our historical books, we not only did Samuel and Kings, then we got right into Chronicles. So we got to do it all over again. And uh, we saw in both of those that there are two precipitating events that really distinguish Israel's ancient history. And that's the fall of the Northern Kingdom in 722 and the fall of the Southern Kingdom in 586. And can we 
place the prophets around those big events? Or did, did the prophets sort of, especially the latter prophets, sort of seem to cluster around those two major events? Yes. So of the prophetic books that have that have survived, that have really spoken to people over time, many of them we can place historically because they're responding to these major events and crises in the life of ancient Israel. They are maybe after the destruction of the North, they are prophets in the South warning that the same thing could happen again and dealing with the, the trauma of that. Mm-hmm. Or for even later prophets, they are, are prophets who are expecting the exile to Babylonia to come and even speaking in Babylonian exile, like Ezekiel does, about where our comfort should come and what we should do next. Okay. So prophecy is also really um, typically rooted in a historical circumstance. Yes. We see this both because prophetic books that that are in a prophet's name tend to begin specifically by listing the kings under which that prophet spoke that give us a sense of where in time and what the historical circumstances are that they are speaking to. Uh, in general, we, we can expect historical prophets to be speaking to a very particular moment in time to their particular king. There's a, a wonderful teaching from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's an important 20th century Jewish thinker. And he says that the prophet speaks from the perspective of God as perceived from the perspective of his own situation. So what that means is the, the prophet is called by God, the prophet speaks for God, but the prophet is still a human being who has the limitations of a human being's understanding of their own place in history. Mm-hmm. So the, the prophet is able to speak from God's perspective, but only as it pertains to the, the historical situation in front of them. That's the classical idea of a prophet. Yeah, yeah, rooted in a historical situation. So, which I think is a good segue into talking about Isaiah and talking about Isaiah's call narrative, because right at the beginning of Isaiah, we're situated in a historical situation, right? Yes. We know that Isaiah, uh, we're given uh, the name of his father. We say Isaiah, the son of Amotz. We're thinking of a specific person. And it says that he has a vision in the year that King Uzziah died, which we think is probably 742 BCE about. So he has this vision. And this vision is very great and very cosmic. In this vision, Isaiah is sitting at the feet of God when God is on a giant throne. This is God's throne room. This is where the magic happens. This is uh, the sea of power. And Uh, God is surrounded by seraphim. This ancient picture of seraphim, this kind of angel, is actually kind of terrifying. They're not like cute and chubby cheeks. They have three sets of wings that are each doing different things, and it's very overwhelming. And in this vision, the seraphim say to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, that would be kadosh, 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 Adonai tzvaot. When we say hosts, we're not thinking about like having people over to your house, but hosts like vast armies. It is like a terrifying spectacle. And this is language that has become very important for later Jews and for later Christians, because it is this window into what God's court looks like on a random day. And we see that what the seraphim are saying, we're given a direct quote for how they pray and how they praise God. Mm-hmm. And, and this holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts becomes part of the language, both of Jewish prayer and also of Christian hymns. In chapter six, we have the uh, the vision and holy, holy, holy is in uh, chapter six, verse three. So then what happens is Isaiah, it doesn't, feels unworthy, feels like an ordinary human person in this situation and is totally overwhelmed until a seraph, one of the seraphim, touches his lips with a coal, which takes away his sin and wrongdoing and maybe makes his speech somehow true or worthy or able to convey divine speech 
there's something about that image of touching his his lips with this coal that burns everything bad away. And now he's somebody who can be, while still a human being, God's conduit. So, and God says, who can I send and who will go for us? And now Isaiah feels able to say, I'm here. It's me. Send me. Send me. Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways, quite, quite a bit different than other call narratives that we've seen in the historical books, specifically Moses, where Moses is like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> uh, in this sense, God seems to be much more forceful in, um, in, in helping the prophet get over that fear. Uh, right, which allows him to, to almost volunteer, but only to volunteer once he feels like he's been changed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's recognizable as a call narrative that's similar in some ways to something like the burning bush, but, and yet it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What else in this sort of first Isaiah stands out? And I just said first Isaiah, I kind of gave away, spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about that though, because I said first Isaiah. So obviously Isaiah is a long book, but scholars have, have kind of figured out that uh, Isaiah isn't one single document written at one period in time. Can you talk about that a little bit, Annie? Yes. So we know from the story of the kings that this this Isaiah figure served under that we can date it to, the, say, the 700s BCE about. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah seem very... Uh, makes sense for what we would expect of that prophet. We have a prophet who is speaking to kings and is talking about the situation in the world. And even though he's had this very cosmic call to speak for God, the situations that he speaks to from God's perspective are what you would expect kings to ask questions about. They're about the other more powerful empires in the region and should we be afraid of them and should we fight them? How are we gonna make a safe and fair world in this political situation in this specific time with the kings that are around us? And that's what we would expect for the roles of prophets in societies with kings. That makes a lot of sense. And when you get through chapter 39 of Isaiah, so it's already a long book where we have a lot of these kinds of prophecies. It ends with Isaiah speaking to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, that is Hezekiah in his own head thought, there will be peace and security in my days. So that makes, that's what we would expect of a, of a prophet to a king, that the best they could possibly do is to get to peace in our days, to give the good guidance that brings us through our, our political situation to be safe. Mm-hmm. Then immediately in chapter 40, there's a huge change in the tone and the style of writing that I think most readers, if they were reading 39 and 40, would notice. Even commentators in the Middle Ages already sort of noticed that there's a big difference here. The first uh, medieval commentator who notices this is a figure called uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra, who's a a Jewish scholar in the medieval Muslim world. Ibn Ezra is a very attentive and close reader, and he notices that there's such a change here between 39 and 40 that it's almost like there's a new writer. And he's sort of hinting, I really think that's what's going on here. And as scholars, we might say that this new voice is a later prophet in the tradition of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. So somebody who who studied Isaiah's work carefully and is inspired by Isaiah, but is speaking to his own time, and because he's speaking to his own time, it feels really different. He's speaking to a time where monotheism and the worship of one God has become so secure and, and so well understood by religious people that you can you can talk very cosmically and broadly about peace in the whole world and God over the whole world. Mm. It's more universal when you get to this figure that we might call second Isaiah. So there's an idea that uh, Yahweh, the divine, isn't just... Uh, uh, centered in Jerusalem, 
but maybe through the experience of the exile, the diaspora, there's this understanding that, no, wait, Yahweh came with us to Babylon. Wait, maybe Yahweh is broader than just our temple. Yes. So this, this section starts, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. So it's, it's a, talking about the return from exile, mm. which is not something that, that the historical first Isaiah could have known about. Right his own time because it hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. We're talking about somebody, uh, a figure who knows the great pain and trauma of exile and is talking about what a great universal God who understands the whole world could do to comfort you about that and to see the things that are coming next. Gotcha. And many well-known passages of, of beauty about the great breadth of, of God come from what we would call second Isaiah, the later parts of the book. The notion of a light being a light into the nations comes for second Isaiah. So the idea that you can be a particular people in the world and yet the whole world can benefit from these teachings comes from here. Also the idea of going up to God's holy mountain, which is both an image of Jerusalem, but also an idea that that there's maybe one holy place in the world that all people can, that can come to, that we can imagine a time in the future where all people are united in worshiping God there. Sometimes it takes it takes uh, diaspora and distance in order to like really treasure those specifics again and to really, they're, they're works of, of great imagination that could be also works of great comfort. A vision of a, of a broader world, a, a healed world and a united world. Uh, passages that are very beautiful and have been very inspiring in both Christian and Jewish tradition. All right, any kind of like a final word on, on Isaiah or on first or second Isaiah? So there's two books I'd like to recommend if you want to learn more about the prophets yeah. in general and Isaiah in particular. One is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, The Prophets, which is a, a wonderful, both a philosophical work on what prophecy means and a specific has, has a specific teachings about each prophet that summarize Jewish tradition on those prophets and also give a 20th century philosophical perspective. It's a really wonderful classic. Another book that I would recommend, especially if you're interested in the question of what does it mean to have a biblical book that has a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah, would be the book How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now by James Kugel. It is a book about how we reconcile scholarly views on what these books might have meant in their original context with the religious beliefs of Jews and Christians in both the ancient and modern worlds. And it's written by a great scholar of the Bible who's also himself a religious Jew. And so he wrestles with these questions himself as well. Wow. I, I had never heard of that book. Now you got me looking it up now. That's fascinating. Check it out. It has sections on uh, many different parts of the Bible, but the part that's about first and second Isaiah and what to do with that, I think is particularly a highlight. It's worth noting that the prophets and prophecy make up the last bit of our journey through the Old Testament. For the next nine weeks, we will be reading major and minor prophets and discussing their themes. If you've been with us for the entire journey, pat yourself on the back. We're almost through the Old Testament. And if you're just joining us or fell off for a bit, that's okay too. Hop back on by subscribing to the podcast and tell a friend about it too. We really want this to be a tool for people to learn how to read the Bible without fear or frustration. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. And you can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook, search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. 
And before signing off, I want to give a quick shout out to Monica Largesse. Monica is our summer intern from Yale Divinity School who connected Annie and me for this interview. And Monica will be a virtual member of our Hyde Park staff all summer from Austria. I'm Matt Hotho, and I'll see you next week.